Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And uh, Luke is a writer of one of four Gospels, or accounts of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's Son, made flesh, made man for us, to reconcile us to God by his death, to put away our sins, and give us hope in his resurrection. And uh, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, Luke chapter 1, is in your pew Bible on page 1018. And so if you wondered where we were going after our studies three months in the book of Job, now you know. Let's uh, first give our attention to the reading of God's Word, and then with God's help, we will reflect on its meaning and what God is saying to us in it for our lives. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to God's Word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and... He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous 
so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, which lasted about a week, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. The Word of God. This is how the story of Jesus begins. With a cousin being born to an old couple. And that cousin's going to have the job of preparing the people of God for God's visitation in baby Jesus. So we begin the... uh, what the church has traditionally held to be the Advent season, looking forward to uh, Christmas when Jesus' birth is celebrated, but uh, also looking forward to his return, his second Advent. Well, I, um, when asked what I would be going to preach on after Job, I responded to our Bible study group, I'm going to preach on the writings of uh, a man who wrote more verses in the New Testament than anyone else, and left that for them to figure out who it was. And of course, people's most obvious guess is Paul. He wrote the most books. There are 27 books in the New Testament, and uh, he wrote... 13, so that's almost half of the books. But, of course, some of them are pretty tiny, and like Philemon is one chapter. So, actually, of all of the verses of the New Testament, and I'm sorry, I don't have a total count, Paul, in those 13 letters, wrote 2,032. John, who writes two big works, the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation at the end, and three little epistles, only amounts to 1,407 verses. But it is Luke who writes one book in two parts, Luke and Acts, both to the same man, uh, Theophilus, who writes 122 verses more than the Apostle Paul. And the interesting thing about that is who Luke is, as very clear from Paul's reference to Luke. He's a companion on Paul's journey. But he's a convert from the Gentile world. Paul is very much a Jew, right, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he is 
a Pharisee who came to embrace Jesus through God's intervention on the road to Damascus as God's promised Messiah. And that transformed him. But uh, Luke is a Gentile. And he's also, by trade, a physician. He's described as the beloved physician by Paul in the letter to the Colossians. So he's a, he's a very educated Gentile. And we have every reason to embrace that identification of Luke from the writings of Luke himself. When Luke, in distinction from Matthew and Mark and John, write about the uh, miracles of Jesus, of healing people, he uses specifically medical terminology of his day, whereas the other gospel writers don't with such precision. Luke is also, as he introduces himself here to the man that he's writing this book to, a careful historian. So a few things then. Luke is a missionary companion of Paul in his travels. When we get to the book of Acts, and yeah, we've got a long-term plan here. There's a gospel and there's its follow-up in the book of Acts, and we'll be there eventually, Lord willing. There are passages in which the first-person plural is used. We went from here to here. And then there are passages in which the third person is. They went. So it's obvious that at times, Luke, who is being very, very careful about the way he writes, just like he says he is, uses that first-person plural to indicate he's along that leg of the journey. So he's a companion of Paul and the other missionaries like Silas, and he is a personal physician, presumably, and we do know that Paul had some medical issues. And he's also the chronicler or the account keeper, the historian of the journey. He writes in the most beautiful and fluid Greek of, of the entire New Testament, because that's his native tongue. Why is he writing? Well, you notice he writes to a man called Theophilus, which puts together the Greek words love, uh, as in brotherly love, Philadelphia, phile, love, and theos, God. So, a lover of God. And you might assume, well, that makes him a believer, but that's a very common uh, name enough in uh, secular circles in that day, or Greek circles. So, there's something else about this man. Did you notice the words, most excellent? Sounds like Luke's being kind of fancy in the way he addresses the man that he's writing this account of Jesus' life to. But actually, this is a title that was reserved for a high-ranking official in the government of the Roman Empire, which is the greatest you know, world government of that day. It surrounded the entire Mediterranean Sea. It ruled over many, many different people groups, including the Jews in Judea. So, how does that tell us why Luke wrote the Gospel and the Book of Acts? And it's interesting, the Book of Acts ends with what event? Does anyone know? very end of the book of Acts, we've gone from the birth of Jesus to his death and resurrection in the, in the book of Luke, and then the, in the book of Acts to the church now after Jesus has ascended into heaven and sends his Holy Spirit, and the church, the apostles, are empowered to preach the gospel and spread out, and Paul has gone all the way where? Anyone know? At the end of the book of Acts. 
Yeah, not quite Spain yet. That comes later. So that's not accounted for in the book of Acts. He ends up in Rome, which was always his intention because Paul was a strategic missionary. He would aim for the major cities and Rome was above and beyond the most massive, populated, diverse, cosmopolitan and important city in the world at that time. The other places that he went to, uh, like Corinth and Ephesus, I mean, these were big cities, but Rome was double the size of the greatest of all the other cities. It was immensely strategic. It was the center of power for this amazing machine called the Roman Empire, which dominated such a vast amount of territory and had to do this with military power and might. And Paul wants to go to Rome as he writes this, the, his letter to the Roman church, which he didn't stop, uh, start. It actually it started with people who were there in Jerusalem at Pentecost and was taken to Rome by them. And he writes this book saying, I've really wanted to come to Rome so often. And someday I'm going to, if the Lord wills, because I want not only to go to the strategic center of the empire, the, the, uh, the Roman church, but then I want to have you join me in a missionary effort to the farthest western reaches of the empire, to Spain. So someone mentioned Spain. And uh, later on, Paul does go to perhaps Spain. He certainly goes to Crete and does more evangelistic work. But the book of Acts ends up with him in Rome in what condition? How does he end up getting to Rome? I don't think it was his original plan, but it was God's way of answering that hope and prayer. In chains, that's right. He got into some trouble with his uh, opponents among his own Jews, his former buddies in the Pharisaic world, uh, when he went to Jerusalem once, and they started a riot, and he got arrested, and they made all kinds of accusations that he was trying to overthrow the Roman government, and he made an appeal to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen, and he decided, for the sake of the gospel, to use his privilege of citizenship to appeal to the emperor himself, and so he goes and ends up in chains in Rome, and he's waiting for his trial date. And as anyone knows, it takes a while for a trial date to happen. So he's in Rome at least two years under house arrest, but not fruitlessly. The last word that Luke writes in his writings, anyone know at the very end of the book of Acts? It's a great word. Without peeking. What? Unhindered. Unhindered. It speaks about how this man in chains, his life task of spreading the gospel was not chained. And he says as much to the church in Philippi, who sends them a gift and tells them they're worried about him and they're upset that this man who's so vigorous and such a traveler is now pinned down and chained. And he says, no, 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 it's all working out beautifully. And by the way, members of Caesar's household send their greeting. In other words, while he is chained to a centurion round the clock, Paul is telling them about Jesus and people are coming to faith. So how does that relate to Luke's purpose in writing this book? Well, there are two answers to that question. It probably has an apologetic purpose, and by that I don't mean like an apology saying sorry, but an explanation or a defense in a legal trial. So Paul is getting ready for presenting his case to Caesar, explaining that as opposed to his Jewish accusers, he is not trying to spread an illegal religion, something brand new, but rather 
The Jewish religion that in the controlling government of Rome had legal permission to carry out its religious traditions is the seeds from which Christianity and the church grew. It's actually the fulfillment of true Judaism, real Old Testament religion. That would have been Paul's defense against his accusers. And also that it's not in any way a political attempt to overthrow the Roman government. So you have then Luke addressing a high-ranking Roman official that explains not only the ministry of Paul, but its roots going right back to the beginning. And it's a very good guess that part of the purpose of this was, here's an end with someone in Caesar's household, Theophilus, and here is Paul's case explaining what this whole Christianity was and why these Jews from the far-flung reaches of this empire are taking their little squabbles here to Caesar's court and taking up Caesar's time. Well, here's what it's all about. So, it likely has an apologetic purpose, but it definitely has a didactic or instructive purpose because, as we read here, Theophilus is not just some government clerk in Rome. He has been taught, verse 4, about Christianity. He's either a young believer or he's someone who is interested, who's been listening, maybe to Paul himself, about Jesus. And Luke writes this thorough account saying, I've studied it, I've documented it, I've done the research, I've conducted the interviews, I don't know what idea you have about how Scripture comes to be. There are these paintings of, uh, of the Gospel writers like Luke, where you have a, a, an angel basically whispering the words, okay, here's the next word to write, Luke, and Luke's saying, okay, I've went right, the, oh, sorry, ah, uh, um, as th- that's the dictation sort of view of the Bible that sort of uh, we're not involved in this at all. Well, I take heart from the fact that this is overseen by the Spirit of God, but it's grounded in real history. And it involves an intellectual man, very diligent and studious, doing the investigative work. It's important that this isn't fairy tales. That we're not just persuading people of stuff that we believe from the sheer power of our own charisma or something like that. Or just trust me. No, there were eyewitnesses here. And Luke has interviewed them. And he makes that case. He says, Theophilus, there are a lot of accounts accounts going around about Jesus. Some of them are reliable, some of them are not. But I have taken all the time needed to make sure that you get the straight story, the facts. So we come to this book with that confidence that this is the man God used to tell us about Jesus. So it's interesting. A Gentile writing more verses in the New Testament than anyone else. And listen, there are no Gentiles writing the Old Testament. In other words, we are reading the only words penned by a Gentile in the whole Bible. And it takes up more verses than anyone else's verses in the New Testament. I mean, these are sort of interesting facts. No, but I think they speak about the message of the New Testament 
itself. And specifically, the historical sort of the arc of the story that Luke is presenting in the Gospel and the Book of Acts. What is that story? It's about a worldwide religion that goes to the very center of the secular heathen empire of Rome. Unhindered. With churches springing up from synagogues, but then spreading among Gentile believers of all different kinds of people groups. And here we are in America, part of that phenomenon. And it's being recorded by someone who was not ethnically Jewish, was not by family tradition tied to this particular religion. Family had their own religion. So Luke himself and the bulk of the New Testament says something. That this Old Testament religion that begins with an old man, Abraham, and his old wife, Sarah, goes back to talk about creation. That God, when he said to Abraham, of all the people in the world, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. I'm setting up a covenant with you. But it's not exclusive, it's inclusive in the long run. Here is history. Through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here's the fulfillment of that. And Luke is a testimony to that. And so we're going to have, by the end, by the end of the book of Revelation, right, there's a, a numberless multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We're part of that. Luke is part of that. That's the arc of the story. Luke acts the very end of the book of Acts. But look where Luke begins. Where does the story begin? In a very, very Jewish setting, right? With an old Jewish couple in the holy place of the Jewish temple. That's its roots. That's part of Paul's point, right? I haven't come up with some new teaching, some new religion. This is old, this is ancient, this is based on God's promises from a long time ago that he has fulfilled. So here we have not just an old couple, but a barren couple. Um, Elizabeth, a barren woman, childless, and her old husband. And they're both of the descendants of Aaron. In other words, of the children of Israel... Of the tribes of Israel, they are descended of the Levites, and, and among the Levites, they are descendant of the priestly family of Aaron. In other words, their job was to represent the whole nation, all the Jews, all the nation of Israel, before God in his palace on earth, in his tabernacle, and then in his temple. And that's exactly what their role was. So here's not just a Jew, but here is a Jew of Jews, okay, technically he's a Levite, but he is not only of the people of God, he is one of the representatives of the people of God before the throne of God. That's his priestly function. And she is of the same lineage. So these are set-apart people. Of this, they're inheritors of this grand tradition, but they are childless. And now, like many, many couples, of course, they, they wished that they could have children. But culturally, it's especially important 
as you can get a hint of, maybe in something that doesn't echo in our own day and age, the fact that Elizabeth was barren in her old age was a disgrace that God, by giving them John, finally removed. In other words, it was Elizabeth's assumption, and Zechariah's assumption as well, that the, the inheritance of this grand tradition of the priestly function to represent God's people before God's throne and say the prayers to God ended with them, of the families of the priests. They would not continue. They wouldn't pass that on to their son. So... When Elizabeth was younger and among friends, you know, and they would have their first child and they would speak so excitedly about looking forward to the day when he would be set apart to do the priestly function, it would tear her heart up. And then there would be second children, third children, and so on among her friends. And each time she would be reminded. You remember from our study of the book of Job, there was an aspect of Job's friend's religion where, you know, if you were suffering in some way, it must be because you did something wrong and God is displeased with you. So here, her barrenness is a public shame. And the assumption, unspoken probably, because she was a good person, a righteous person, would be, well, what? What did, what did she do, or why is God displeased with her? She doesn't have a child. And that's the way she had to live. But they were righteous, this couple. And they carried out all the traditions, and they obeyed the commandments of God. They were hanging on to a religious tradition in their barrenness. Finally, Zechariah does have something that he's excited about, I think. He gets to burn the incense. Now, there were lots of descendants of Aaron by this time. So there are lots of priestly divisions, and his division was called up to do their duty. And among his division, which would have been very large, he was selected by lot to do something that really, there weren't enough turns for everyone to do. So if you were able to have the privilege of burning the incense in other words, you go into the holy place of the temple there with the candlesticks and the, and the bread and this dimly lit holy place. And you go right before the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, where the altar was. And at the entrance to the altar, the presence, the throne, as it were, of God himself, you would burn incense which symbolized the rising of prayer, like the smoke rises, like the, the aroma fills the room, the, the presentation of prayer to God, believing that he heard the prayers of his people. And this would have been the highlight of Zechariah's life. In other words, it was so rare an opportunity that if you got picked as a priest to do this, it only happened once in your lifetime. And now, as an old man, Zechariah gets to burn the incense. Now, it's not what he's been praying about earlier. He wanted a child. Elizabeth wanted a child. God has not given them a child. How long ago had they stopped praying that realistically? They were beyond childbearing years. But he did at least get to settle for this. It's a highlight of his life, I think, probably. He gets to burn the incense. So he probably spent a little extra time in the mirror, making sure his hair was, you know, combed right. And uh, here's his big day. And he gets to do it. And I'm sure Elizabeth packed an extra special thing in his lunch and he goes to the temple and he enters into the presence of God and he's by himself there and he's burning the incense and just as the time of that symbol of prayer arises that dim sanctuary is flooded with heavenly light 
an angel appears to him. And he's terrified. And the angel says, don't be afraid. God's heard your prayers. The moment he burns the incense, God's heard his prayers. What prayers? Well, Zechariah, as a priest, would have prayed for God's people. Prayed for the world. Certainly prayed for himself and Elizabeth. But it seemed like God hadn't answered any of those prayers. Uh, God is a really wonderful story writer. And by that I don't mean that he actually, God, pens the words here, Luke did. But God is the one who wrote the, the reality of which we all write when we write any account of anything that happened. We're just writing down our interpretation of history, which is God's writing. And God writes this story, and God is a good writer. He knows all about metaphor. And Zacharias and Elizabeth are a metaphor or a microcosm of God's people. An old couple that has lived with disappointment. But they're the remnant of God's people. They're the ones that are faithfully carrying out the old, the ancient traditions. Many have turned away among the Jews. There are many who have sold out like King Herod himself, we're told, this has occurred in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, in brief, here's the history. Herod was not the descendant of David who was promised to, to be the Messiah to take the throne. He was an Edomite. He was the son of a descendant of Esau. They had been conquered by the Jews about a, 150 years earlier. His family was forced to convert or leave. And through his own cleverness and manipulation, he sides with the Romans who have taken over that land against the Parthian Empire that his opponent has used as a secular power to try to gain power. And he has he's been allowed by Rome as their client to be king of Judea. Now, he's a scandalous man. He's a scurrilous fellow. He's a tyrant. He will kill everyone, including family members and his own wife, who dare threaten his own power. So, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he hears these people from the Parthian Empire say they've seen a star because someone who was born king of the Jews, where is he? And Herod kills all the two-year-old and under boys of the town of Bethlehem. I mean, that's how psychotically power-obsessed this man is, that he would murder babies because of the remotest threat it posed to his power, which was a borrowed power from Rome. So what he did was he made the temple really fancy to try to make the Jews happy, and then he would build temples for the, for the Roman gods in Judea, which offended the Jews, of course. They ended up really hating Herod. But he would do that to keep the Romans happy. And whatever it took to hang on to power, that's the kind of situation. Talk about a microcosm of a larger picture, which is just, where is God? He has abandoned his people. Where is God? He has abandoned Zacharias and Elizabeth. They've lived their life having to accept this new reality that they're not going to get the child they prayed for. The best they can hope for is a nice job in the church, burning the incense, carrying on these grand traditions that seem rather hollow by the fact that the people of God have not heard from God a prophet's voice for 400 years. Now, 
Um, I would say it's fair to say that Zacharias and Elizabeth were believers, right? They had faith, just like maybe you have faith. But what would happen if what you believe actually came true? What would, what would happen if the prayers that you pray were actually answered, and not just the little prayers, so, you know, like me the other day, oh God, please help me find the car key. And God took his time, took about a half hour, and I did find the car key, and I did say thank you. But the big prayers, the deep, aching prayers, and time passes, and it doesn't change, and you accept it. And then God says, okay, I heard your prayer. What is that going to show us about our faith? Could we, could we possibly say that Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't believers? No, they're believers. But what would happen if God actually did what he promised to do? And he answered your prayers? I think we might very well respond like Zechariah. What? I've been praying for this, but I didn't think you would actually do it. Not after all this time has passed. We're old. It's physically impossible. What are they saying to this angel? I love Gabriel's response. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know where I come from? Do you know who I work for? I'm Gabriel. Okay? God sent me to tell you something, okay? So... He punishes? Yeah, well, he doesn't withdraw the blessing of being the father of the forerunner, preparing God's people, turning them back to the faith so that they are prepared to receive Jesus. She doesn't withdraw that blessing, but Zechariah now has to go and has to be with Elizabeth and has to come up with sign language and has to see Elizabeth indeed become pregnant and can't say anything about it until the baby's born and he fulfills his obligation to name him, not Zacharias, but John. So that brings us to the final thought here. But do you believe that God hears your prayers? I mean, really? And when he does answer our prayers, sometimes we're shocked, right? But you know, he can do far more, and he will. God has heard your prayers. And just because you haven't had a child within the normal time frame of having children doesn't mean that God hasn't heard your prayers and isn't going to answer them. And boom, he has. Now, remember the question I asked last week, a great Bible study question like we ask in our study of the book of Genesis. Where have I heard this before? Where have you heard about an old couple that was well beyond childbearing years and boom, this old lady ends up having a baby? At the very beginning, the father and mother, the patriarch of the whole faith, Abraham. That's how it started, with Abraham and Sarah being given a promise. And then, 25 years later, when they're well beyond childbearing years, this 90-year-old woman has a baby. And she laughs because she thinks it's ridiculous. And then she laughs for joy and causes, calls the boy Isaac, which means laughter. Well, 
here we have, then, a new Abraham and Sarah, in a way, isn't it? Like, here we have, it's the same religion, and God's using the same pattern. He's the kind of God that does this. This is how He works, and He is giving this old man something, but He has to wait. He has to have His faith tested. He keeps going to the temple. He keeps being faithful, but God can always do above and beyond anything that we can ask or even imagine. So think of your biggest prayer. It's too small. Do you hear that? Because of God. Because He's bigger than that. And He can, and He does. And how much do we sort of shrink our expectations, and how much do we sort of protect our faith by this realism? I'm not saying, you know, be foolishly unrealistic, but when it comes to believing in the promises of God, be foolishly unrealistic. Really, seriously. Whose prayer does he answer? He answers the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their personal needs, and he answers the prayers of the entire Jewish community, and he answers the prayers of the world, and he does it all the same way. That's how God works. And you know, he's, he, he, the angel says, you and your wife, you're going to be so happy, but you know what? A lot of people are going to be happy and rejoice at this birth. Why? Because that's the way God works. When He blesses our lives, it's too much for us to contain. It's like this cup that runs over and it spills over. And when He blesses us, it's for the blessing of the world. Do you believe that? So pray that way. Pray not just to find your car keys. Pray not just to get over the aches and pains that you should pray for. Amen. But pray big and believe it. Why? Because God... Well, let's talk about names. Names are important here, clearly. And that comes out later on when the baby's born. And indeed, just like the angel said, you've got to name him John. Even though he's going to be your only child, and the natural expectation would be he would have been named after his daddy, Zacharias. No, God's going to take over here. This kid is going to be filled with God's Spirit, even in the womb. And he's going to be set apart in this Nazarite vow, which you can look back in the Old Testament, look it up. Um, it is people who are set apart for a special cause. You can set yourself apart to do a special sort of work for God um, for a period of time. Well, here is a man who is set apart for life, and that's why the whole no drinking wine thing. That's part of the Nazarite vow of someone whose life is going to be, that's going to be very different than John the Baptist, but we'll get there. So names are important. God saying, you're the foster parent. Well, that's true. We're all foster parents of our kids. Our, our kids belong to God. We get them for a time. And we're raising them for their owner, for their father, for their master, for their Lord, for their savior. That's that's who our kids belong to. And uh, so God says, I get to pick the name. It's going to be John. It's not going to be named after you. Because it's, it's not just about you. It's going to be gift of God. That's what John means. And by inference, that means that the only one with the name Zacharias is the guy who's named here as Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. And listen, here's what these two names mean. They are a testimony of faith to their own unbelief. Zacharias means... God remembers. The Lord remembers. And Elizabeth, my God is a covenant. Isn't that beautifully fitting? Here these names are testimonies for 
some reason, you know, in God's storytelling and his providence, their parents named their children these things. God remembers. It's been 400 years, and you're living in a, well, to say it's a less than ideal circumstance, under Roman rule, under this tyrant Herod, in so much compromise, in such a, oh, it's dismal, dark. The Lord remembers all of his promises. He made a covenant. He's your God by covenant. And he does hear your prayer. And that's true. And it's true for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the one who said, We're going to, this cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that's why, as we read in our opening responsive reading, we can approach God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, give us, um, give us enough faith, please, so that we keep going not just at a diminished or shrunk way, but we pray with boldness as true priests in Jesus Christ for the fulfillment of all your promises, Lord. So help us not settle for uh, life as it is, Lord, but help us to embrace your faithfulness no matter how much time has elapsed or will elapse. Lord, thank you for sending your Son in the fullness of time to be our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.